what a glorious Savior we have. And we're going to take time this morning just to look at his life. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to Hebrews chapter 1, please. Hebrews 1. You'll find that on page 1862 in that book rack Bible. Maybe you have an electronic device. You've got a smartphone or a tablet or something that shows you the scripture. I want you to find your way to Hebrews chapter 1, please. There's also a sermon outline. You might want to pull that out if you'd like to reflect a little bit more on this theme that we're looking at today, why we celebrate. I'm amazed how many people go through Christmas season celebrating meals together, parties, uh, gift exchanges, and Jesus is never mentioned. I've spoken to people that come from families that Jesus is not in the center of, of the Christmas celebration. I was in the bank just yesterday, and and the bank teller asked me, how was your Christmas? And I said, it was full of Jesus. How was yours? And she didn't even know how to respond. She handed me like more money than I even wanted. It was like, stopped her in her tracks. I think so many people don't really recognize that the season is about Jesus. And this morning, I just thought in this Advent season, we're going to take another beautiful Advent text And we're going to look at the life of Jesus and his supremacy, his grandeur, his amazing traits that this little passage of Scripture shows to us this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Follow along as I read. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. We will stop right there. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the true celebration of Christmas begins with and is involved in recognizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I want you to write down the word supremacy. I mean, if this is true, then the opposite is true. Then one hasn't, if one hasn't seen the supremacy of Christ, celebrations are missing something, especially at Christmas. And what's obviously foremost in the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, was the way this letter begins. Notice, no salutation, no greeting, no identification of authorship, just raw truth pointing to the great panorama of Christ's deity, sovereignty, power, and rule. It's like the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, if you're living your life apart from the realization that Jesus is supreme, then no matter what you do, you're missing out. You're missing out on the most glorious truth that Jesus is supreme. No one greater, no one higher, no one more lovely, no one better, no one more compelling, no one more anything than Jesus And that's what I want to show you this morning. I want to show you five things out of these four verses as to why Jesus deserves our worship and why we should celebrate him not just at Christmas, but every day of the year. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to see first, we see Jesus' supremacy in the way God communicates. Just say, in the way God communicates. Say it with me. In the way God communicates. We see his supremacy. Look at verse 1. 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You may want to write somewhere there in brackets, Revelation. Not the book of Revelation in the, in the New Testament, but the word Revelation, because that's what this is describing. It's describing that we serve a God, watch this, that actually communicates with us. Now, there are so many people in the world that actually believe that there is a God, but they don't believe that He communicates. He never speaks. You can't ever hear Him. But Christ followers know that God not only speaks, He speaks very directly. Let's talk about how God speaks. First of all, God speaks to us through His creation. We know that God speaks and communicates who He is through creation. I get this question all the time. How can we know God? How can anybody know God? How can we say that people that have never heard of God would uh, end up in a place called hell because they rejected His Son if they never heard of Him? Well, the Bible states very clearly and very powerfully that God reveals Himself in His own creation. Uh, you can hold your place in Hebrews, but I'm going to take you to a couple places because this is really important. Look at Romans chapter 1. Just go back to your, uh, if you find the Gospels, go right. Book of Acts, go right. Come to Romans chapter 1. And in verse 20 of Romans 1, where Paul is making an argument that there's no one that has an excuse. There's no excuse possible to say, well, I never heard of God. I don't know if God ever existed. Why? Because verse 20, look at it. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, did you get that? God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What that tells me is that every person on planet earth God has sown in their hearts the knowledge of who He is by His creation. You say, well, wait a minute. I know lots of people that, that uh, have gone all different ways and they worship other things. Well, read on. Verse 21. For although they knew God, in other words, the impl- implication they understood who God was, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Speaking of the way we create idols for ourselves. In other words, what Paul's saying is that we worship the creation instead of the creator. And there are a lot of people out there today that, that uh, do exactly that. But what, what's happened is we are so rebellious in our hearts that we actually uh, undo what we know about God as true and we replace it with a God of our own. And that's either ourselves, and ultimately that's what it is. It's ourselves. It's a self-worship. And then we extend that worship out into creation or whatever else. We were designed by God to be worshipers. And He made us to worship Him. And so if, if we're out of alignment with worshiping Him through Jesus today then there's something incomplete in our lives and we're going to keep searching, keep looking. No matter what we do in life, we're always going to come up empty with that. Let's go back to the book of Psalms, please. Psalms are about the middle of your Bible. If you don't know where Psalms is, middle of your Bible or so. Psalms 19. Psalms 19. Psalm 19. Verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. 
Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What is that saying? When we look up into the heavens, we see that there is a God who's created, and we are hearing the speech that comes from this. Look at God's glory, the psalmist says. This is what creation tells us. Look at the glory of God. And instead of exchanging that glory for a glory in our own image, the psalmist says we should give praise to God because He is the one. And back to the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans corroborates in saying that that our God in His creation has revealed Himself. Now theologians call this general revelation. Say say those two words. General revelation. That means God is communicating in sort of a, a silent way but a very clear way. He's speaking through his creation from the micro or from the macro all the way to the micro. A couple nights ago, I took a walk. Christmas night, did you take a walk? Did you go outside and did you see the moon that night? Man, it was amazing. It was just giants coming up on the horizon and it was just huge. And immediately I thought, man, God, you are amazing. As my heart wanted to say, Have you ever been to like an observatory and seen the pictures of what, you know, Hubble and other telescopes have taken when they span out into space? It's glorious. You see all the constellations and all the the galaxies and, and you just are dumbfounded by the fact that this is the creation as far out as you can see, this amazing expanse of galaxies and solar systems and and beyond our possible comprehension. And all of that, God says, I do that so that people will see my glory. Wow, it's amazing. So question, do you give him glory for what you see? That's a general revelation. That's enough information that anybody on the planet has that there's a God who made it and I know that's not me. (laughs) I know that there's some supernatural being and the Bible promises that when a person leans into the light that they have, God gives more light. So then that brings us to what we know as special revelation. Say those two words. Special revelation. Now, basically, special revelation is actually the words of God given to us. And here we learn from this text, we're back in Hebrews now, if you're back in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, what we see in Hebrews 1 is that, that, that Jesus, that God has spoken now through Jesus. Now, let's even back up a little bit because he spoke before he spoke through Jesus. He spoke through patriarchs and prophets. And if you're Jewish, the original readers of this book, the book of Hebrews, written to Jewish followers of Jesus, they knew all too well who the patriarchs were. They knew, starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on through the line, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament era, And that God gave specific words. He gave instruction. He gave guidance. He gave wisdom. He gave direction. He gave counsel. And this is what's amazing about our God. That He's not some mysterious, just speaking through sort of the expanse of what He has made, but He actually enters into time and space and speaks words. That's amazing to me. Not like the deists of a couple of centuries ago When deism began, and deism is basically the belief in a one God, but here's what God did. Deism believes that there is a God, but what he did is he wound up everything, and then he stepped away, and now it's just unwinding, and everybody's just doing their own, and God's just sort of aloof from it. He's separated from all of it. That's what deists believe. They believe in God, but they don't believe that he communicates 
like we believe as Christ followers, that God has been speaking. He speaks clearly. There's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any problem with a language for his people. He spoke through patriarchs and he spoke through prophets. And, and finally, the writer of Hebrews says, today he's spoken to us by his son. And think of all the ways that God did this. I mean, his revelation was progressive. He spoke through dreams and visions and signs and burning bushes and pillars of fire and clouds and angels and the priests who wore the ephod and all of those ways. But now the writer of Hebrews says, he says, he spoke, he has spoken through his son. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to write down. Jesus is God's final word. He's God's final word. The grammar here in verse 2 shows contrast to what precedes it. In the past, God spoke this way. But now in these days, he has spoken to us his full and final word. If you'd like to see a couple other places in Scripture about this, let's go to the book of John, please. John 16. Great to hear pages turning. John 16. If you're there, say amen. Okay, most of us are there, so I'll begin. Verse 12. I have much more to say to you, Jesus said, much more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This is a picture, this is a reminder that the Holy Spirit in using the apostolic witness was actually in this point beginning to form the words of Scripture, the Bible that we have right here, the apostolic witness and the words of Christ as the completed revelation of God. The completed revelation of God. Let's go to the book of 2 Timothy, please. If you're in Hebrews, you just go back a few pages to 2 Timothy, a very familiar text in verse th- chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, all Scripture, and the word Scripture there in the Greek language is graphe, which means the writings. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, what are we saying here? We're saying that as Christ followers and Orthodox Christianity believes that God is not continuing to bring new revelation. And we have this right here in Hebrews chapter 1 where there's this point in the grammar that shows that God has in the past used revelations and and, uh, prophecies and prophets and a number of various ways of communicating God's specific word. But in these days, he has spoken to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us that there is a new era, an era that began when Christ came, and then through the apostolic witness, through the, the preaching and teaching of the early apostles and the teaching and the recorded words of our Lord Jesus Christ as we have in Scripture, which is another entire study that we could do, and we have done some studies in this already, but I'm just summing up. What we believe is that this is God's final word, and Jesus is the the person through, through whom that word comes. And that's what John 16 is talking about. The Spirit does not bring new things. He brings what the word of Christ is, and through the apostolic witness. 
So that tells us that anything that comes afterward is not to be believed. And there are myriads of systems. World religions, if you want to talk about like Islam, 600 A.D., the prophet gets a message from God. A couple of centuries ago, we've got lots of prophets springing up around the United States even. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian science, all claiming that they've received a special message from an angel of God or some special communication that is new, it's advanced, it's giving us something new from God. And what Hebrews 1 is telling us is that there's no new revelation. We stand on the promises of what God's Word is, and it is complete. We're not waiting for a new message. We're not tickling our ears by, oh, here's something new. And believe me, that is a rare teaching. That is, that is not what's out there in the world. Everybody believes they've got their own truth. There's a new you know, angel that showed up. There's a new prophecy. There's new something. I've got the new message, and don't listen to any of that. It's God's Word that we need. And Jesus is God's final Word. I always think of that show, Want to Be a Millionaire? Remember that? Is this your final answer, they would ask? (laughs) I don't know, that just popped into my head. Yes, Jesus is the final answer. Let me give you another thing about Jesus' supremacy. Not only do we see his supremacy in the way God communicates, but we see his supremacy in the way God creates. In the way God creates. Say that with me. In the way God creates. Look at verse 2b and verse 3b. There in Hebrews chapter 11. Notice it says, through whom he made the universe and through whom he sustains all things by his powerful word. This is incredible. Now we all know that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as creator, right? Genesis 1.1, let's say it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Hebrews 1 gives us an explanation of what's going on in in Genesis 1. It tells us, even though we don't know how God did it, we know that God did it through His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the creating agent of God. Now, most of us don't think that way, but that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, In fact, if you're taking notes, you could just write down that Jesus is God's creating agent and the sustainer of the entire universe. Um, Let's go in our Bibles back to the Gospel of John. I'm going to show you a couple places where this comes out. It comes through just tons of places, but some that you might uh, have not thought of or immediately have thought of. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who's the Word we're talking about? Jesus. Look at verse 14. The Word became what? Flesh. So we know that this is Jesus. Look at verse 3. Through Him, Jesus, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. So right there, John, one of Jesus' own disciples, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, promised to us in John 16 when Jesus even spoke these words, the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance what he had given. Right here we see that Jesus is God's creating agent, the second person of the Trinity. 
Let's go over to the book of Colossians, please, and see this again, Colossians. If you find the New Testament epistles of Galatians, go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then the book of Colossians, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, in the context, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I've had people actually tell me, well, what this means is that Jesus was the first of God's creation. That's not what this is saying. You cannot translate that from the Greek word prototokos, which does not mean first in creation. Watch this. It means preeminent over creation. Firstborn does not mean one of, it means one over. So when Jesus is the firstborn of creation, it means he is preeminent over his creation. He was not created like some cults will tell us. He is not a created being. He has always existed. He was, the be- in the beginning was the Word, and the word, in, and the word was with God, and the Word was God, right? The eternality of the Son is seen here in this passage. Go on, verse 16. For by him all things were created. There it is. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Remember, he is, he is over, he is, there's that word prototokos again. He is preeminent over the dead. So that in everything he might have what? The supremacy. That's what we're talking about. So here we have Jesus once again showing this beautiful portrait of the fact that we know that he's supreme not only in the way God communicates, he's God's final word, but in the way God creates. He is God's creating agent and sustainer of all things. And that's why, back to Hebrews, let's go back to Hebrews, that's why it says that about Jesus, that through whom he, appoint, he was appointed heir of all things. It begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. He is the rightful heir of all things because he is the creator of all things. And one day he's going to make everything right. That's what Advent reminds us. This world, as messy as it is, Jesus is going to one day completely transform. He came the first time to bring salvation through the forgiveness of sins when he went to the cross and rose again from the grave. He comes a second time to set up his kingdom on earth and rule and reign. We cannot look at the manger without seeing the cross and the empty tomb. And that's why we celebrate at this time of year because we celebrate that this is how we remember how it began and that he holds it all together. You know, scientists, I've done a fair amount of reading on this, and I don't claim to be a scientist, but I, it intrigues me to when you read articles about what, what scientists believe that holds everything together because there's this something that scientists are still trying to understand. How does everything hold together? And here we just read in the book of Hebrews that he holds all, he sustains all things by his powerful word. It's Jesus that holds it together. Isn't that awesome? Jesus. So here's, I have a question for you, okay? This is all, you think, wow, this is only two days after Christmas. This is heavy theology. Yes, it's beautiful. It's it's life-changing. It's liberating. Listen, if Jesus is all these things, if he's creator, if if he's God's final word, if he sustains all of this by the word of his mouth, if he can do all that, don't you think he can take care of your life? 
I mean, what are we worried about? I, I get so stressed out at times. But don't you think that if Jesus holds all this together, he can hold your life, he can take care of your financial needs, he can deal with the family structures that you're in, he can help you in your addiction, he can do all those things. He can do whatever he pleases to bring glory and honor to himself. And all we need to do is lean in and trust. And I'm, I'm reminding myself today, and I want to be reminding myself every day that if I've got Jesus in my life, I really don't need anything else. I have him, and my life is secure. And even if everything's falling apart around me and even in me, I can, I can stand up and know that my God, through his son Jesus, will sustain me. I don't have to worry. What a liberating thought that is. Cast your worries to the wind. Just don't even fret about life. And that's why Jesus said, don't worry about your life. I've got it. If you belong to him, he's got you. We see Jesus' supremacy in the way God communicates and the way God creates. Look at this, verse 3. We also see Jesus' supremacy in the way God clarifies who he is or his identity. When I mean God here, because Jesus is God, I mean the Father. Here's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know about Jesus. He shows us what the Father is like. Look at it, verse uh, verse. Three, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. You know the phrase that we describe there, the exact representation of His being, that long phrase? That comes out of one Greek word. In the, in the original language, this word describes, and it's only found here in the New Testament. In, in extra-biblical literature, it describes an engraving on wood or an etching in metal or a brand on an animal hide or an impression on clay or a stamped image on coins. It's as if when you see the image, you see you, it bears something. It bears the image. And this is what Hebrews is saying. Um, if I were to tell you today, hey, uh, when you, it's a beautiful day. It's sunny. Well, it was sunny earlier. I think it's cloudy now. But the next time the sun is out, just take a little time and stare at the sun and really get a good look at it. Now, if I told you to do that, you'd say, you're crazy. That would really hurt my eyes. You're right. Don't do that. But if you're going to see the glory of the sun, you have to stare at it. But the way you stare at it is you stare at it through a filter. And you've seen pictures of the sun, the glory of the sun with all the firestorms and just these magnanimous, gigantic, you know, they go, I don't know, the distances of them are like thousands and thousands of miles. They come leaping off the sun's surface. If you're going to look at that kind of glory, you have to have a filter. It's the same way what Hebrews is saying here, that the sun is the filter of the Father. The sun is a, is a visible picture. When you look at the sun, you remember Philip in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. He says, Jesus, would you show us the Father? And Jesus says to Philip, he says in chapter 14, verse 9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the filter. You cannot look upon the Father's glory. And once in a while in the Gospels, Jesus peeled back that glory, didn't he? Matthew 17, he takes his disciples up on the mountain. We don't know what mountain it was. Somewhere in northern Israel, Galilean area. Might have been Mount Tabor, about 2,000 feet. Might have been Mount Hermon, about 9,000 feet. Bigger mountain, doesn't matter. He, He took his disciples up on a mountain and there it says he transfixed himself before them or he transfigured himself or he shone his glory. It's like he stopped for a moment just to let everybody see that he was not just a man, but that he was the God-man. And you remember the disciples that were with him, uh, they, they said, Lord, you know, we should build tabernacles here. All, they saw Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. It was a glorious scene. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? But the Bible says, goes on, Jesus says, uh, 
He, he goes on to say that um, you will all see my glory. We will all see the glory of the Lord. Uh, at some point, we will see his glory, the glory of, of indescribable words in heaven, not here. Uh, we, we see glimpses and little wisps of things that, that sort of perk our hearts up. We say, God, you're amazing. We see his creation. We look into the expanse. We see the micro. We look into the, the smallest elements and we say, God, you are amazing. But Jesus says, one day you're going to see my glory. And in that day, we will be made just like him. We will see him as he is, like First John tells us. We will be pure as he is pure, for we will see him as, as he is. He is the one who clarifies for us the Father's image. We see the Father through Jesus. So we see his supremacy in the way he, God communicates through revelation, the way he creates in creation, and the way he uh, presents the image, the way he clarifies who God is, uh, who the Father is. And we see this in a beautiful way through the incarnation. If you're looking for a word to describe that, the incarnation. And then number four, if you're taking notes, we see Jesus' supremacy here in verse 3b in the way God cures. Say that with me, in the way God cures. And what I mean by that is that Jesus came to save us from our sins, Right? It says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down. This is a curious phrase. If you were a, a, a Jewish person reading this text, if you were Hebrew background, you would know exactly what this was talking about because the priest, after bringing the sacrifice and completing all that was involved in the sacrifice, the priest would sit down. And sitting down was, was an indication that the work was finished that there was no more that needed to be done. So the writer of Hebrews is giving us a beautiful picture that when Jesus provided purification for sins, when he went to the cross, went to death, and rose again from the grave, he ascended to his Father and sat down at his right hand. Sitting down is a beautiful image throughout the book of Hebrews that the, the, the priestly work is finished. Our priest, our great high priest Jesus has finished his work. He has finished the work, the work of bringing lost and and helpless sinners into a relationship with the living God. So talk about how awesome it is that why we should celebrate this Jesus is because he brings lost sinners like you and me full of guilt and our need for forgiveness to find a way of freedom and complete pardon before our God. This is what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And for that, we should worship him every day and thank him. Our lives are an expression of gratitude. We're not working for our salvation. We are working out our salvation. We are working in response to our salvation. We are to bring good works, not because we want to get to heaven, but because we are heaven bound. And we give glory and honor to him. God communicates, creates, clarifies, and cures all through Jesus. He is worth our celebration. He is worth our worship because He is our revelation. He is the Creator. He is the Incarnate One. He is the Redeemer. And lastly, I love how Hebrews, this little opening, this little uh, overture at the start of this amazing book that we studied a few years ago, by the way. We went verse by verse through this book. We see Jesus' supremacy in the way He compares to angels, verse 4, so he became much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much superior to theirs. 
Remember, he was given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2 tells us. Obviously, Hebrews, in the contemporary uh, writing of Hebrews, there was a, a group of people known as the Gnostics. And one of the elements of Gnosticism was the worship of angels. And it was kind of a false humility that the, Gnostics, that the Gnostics presented. What I mean by that is that the Gnostics believed that, yes, there was a God, but that He was so other and transcendent, there was no way that humans could ever approach this God. So the only way to approach the God of heaven would be to approach through angels. And so angels became an object of worship. This is a very prevalent uh, um, situation in the days that the book of Hebrews was written and many of the New Testament books. The book of Colossians is another book that actually addresses uh, the early Gnostic problem. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 18, listen to this. It says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility, now you see what this means, in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. So early Gnosticism presented that God could be worshipped but you had to worship him through an angel. And angels became an object of people's worship as a result of that. And that was false humility. It was like, oh, we could never come into the presence of Almighty God. We just come in the presence of angels. And angels were worshipped. If you go to a bookstore today, there's not too many around. But you can Google this. You can go online. You can, you can look for books on angels. And there's just a myriad of books on angels. And angels are real beings. They are spirit beings. In fact, if you're in Hebrews, look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Would you look at it? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Have you ever heard the term guardian angel? That's where this comes from, Hebrews 1.14. There are angels that minister, they're ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. I don't know how many are attached to you or to me. Maybe God dispatches them in a moment where they're needed for something. My mom used to tease me that because of her prayers, God dispatched many angels because of the stupid things I got involved in. Thank you, mom. And if that were true, I mean, perhaps true. We have ministering angels, but they are not to be worshipped. Even in the book of Revelation where John was presented with a glorious vision and by an angel and he fell down to worship before, but worship God, but he fell down before the angel and the angel would say, don't worship me, worship God. There's a, there's, a, there's a desire in people's hearts these days to sort of transfix on angels and the study of angels. Angels are true. They're true, real beings, but they are not to be worshipped. And this is what the writer of Hebrews, a very prevalent contemporary issue, and I think it does spill over into our day. People think that when you die, you become an angel, Especially children. Oh, there's an angel now in heaven. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. Angels are created beings, but they're separate from humans. And they are not a part of God's redemption plan. Only humanity. In fact, the book of Peter tells us that angels long to see what salvation is all about. They don't understand because they are not redeemed. Interesting things. We could go on on that. But the point is, all of, the point of all this is that Jesus is supreme. And that is what this season is about. That's what Advent is about. And that's what every day of our lives should be about. Let me ask you a question. Is He supreme in your life today? Is He supreme? Is there no one or nothing else? 
And if we were honest, there are days of our lives where we put a lot of things in front of Jesus. We put our schedule, our job, our relationship, stuff. We put all that stuff. And so we're constantly, as Christ followers, being reminded. And that's why when we read Scripture, all we see is the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. Oh, God, let me worship you through Jesus, your Son. Oh, Lord, thank you for revealing your Son to me. Our lives should be a constant prayer of thanksgiving for the God who revealed himself through his Son, Jesus. And that's who we worship, and that's why we worship. And that's why we celebrate. Now today, if you've never opened your life, today might be the day that Jesus would reveal himself to you. You can give your life to him. In these closing moments of this service, he would invite anyone who doesn't know him to come and give their lives to him. Would you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now.